a rising tide lifts all boats. And on the flip side, the phrase is when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked, right? And so the application for that here is when there's a recession, you figure out who's really bought good assets and who is just kind of lucky. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they're investing and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you're thinking about investing passively in real estate and you want to learn how to evaluate a deal, I created a free guide for you that would walk you through the top five critical deal components that you have to examine every time you look at a deal. You can find and download it for free at my website, ellieperlman.com. Okay, so my guest today is Drew Niffin. He has a corporate finance and real estate investing career that spans over a decade. After finishing graduate school, where Drew acquired a JD and an MBA degree, and that's all we have in common, Drew worked as an investment banker. He began his full-time real estate career in 2008. What a great year to do that, when he acquired cash flowing properties. Today, Drew controls over 1,500 units across the U.S., valued over $85 million. Drew lives in Seattle, Wyoming with his wife and four kids. Welcome to the show, Drew. Thank you, Ellie. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background, and how you ended up in real estate? Yeah, for sure. As you said, just a few moments ago, I have been doing this for a long time. It started out as a hobby, honestly, and then the hobby turned out to be so good that I said, man, I should apply more and more of my energy to it and eventually have been pivoted to doing it full time. So it really started, I was what they call an accidental landlord. So back in 04, 05, I bought a condo, was living in it in graduate school, and then I decided to move out of it. But because of the Great Recession, I was underwater on it. So I couldn't sell it because I would have had to bring cash to the closing table. And so really, without any strategic thinking, I was like, maybe I'll just rent this thing out. And I did and rented it out for about five or six years. Over those five or six years, the tenants paid down my mortgage, the property reappreciated, I had a little bit of cash flow and I finally sold it about five years later. I was $100,000 richer than I would have been if I had just sold it back in 08 or 09. And I was like, I didn't really do anything for those five years. I just like had great tenants in there and they paid me on time. And I was like, that is awesome. And I thought, if I could do this with one unit, what if I could do it with 100? And that sparked the interest. And then I just sort of stumbled forward and I can share more about the whole story, but that was the lightning bolt moment. And I just moved forward from there. And as you said, here I am later, about, you know, one decade later and about 1500 more units under my belt. So it's been a fun ride.
That's awesome. So I want to kind of start talking a little bit about the asset portion of the show. And the assets, as you mentioned, is multifamily and you own 1,500 units across the U.S. What type of multifamily properties do you focus on? Because a lot of you have urban, you have suburban, you have class A, B, and C, you have all kinds of properties across the boards. Yeah, you can cut it up a lot of different ways. So our group, Nighthawk Equity, focuses on class B and class C multifamily. They're garden styles. This is one or two stories high. They're not high rises. It's not mixed use with a convenience store on the first floor. It's kind of a conventional workforce housing. And geographically, we're in the Southeast. And that's an area that we've found to be a good mixture for both cash flow and appreciation. It also, in general, in the Sun Belt, benefits from some of the demographic trends in America. So we're all multifamily. We stay away from kind of the really beautiful Class A places, try to stay in more of the defensive workforce housing, you know, really necessary housing. And that's our butter and butter. That's our strike zone. And we try to stay right in that spot. Interesting. And so in today's environment, you know, we're kind of in the COVID reality, unfortunately, we're still living it. And hopefully by the time we're going to release this episode in about a month and a half from now, it's not going to be as significant as it is now. But, you know, and obviously when you have different properties across different states, they're being impacted differently by COVID. Can you share with me and the listeners some of the measures that you've taken to protect your assets and what have worked and what didn't work? Yeah. So first off, we have been fortunate that our assets did not get significantly impacted by COVID so far. We're recording this in early May. But our April numbers were really strong. Total collections were about 6% off averages. You know, we were afraid that it might be much worse than that. But it validated our strategy of being in sort of these workforce housing properties. I think the decision to buy these assets appears to have been validated by this recession. A second thing that we are trying to do is, you know, this recession is unlike anything else. It's, it's literally illegal to operate in one-fifth to one-quarter of the U.S. economy. And so... Our tenants who are working at restaurants, this is really through no fault of their own, it's illegal to do that anymore. So on the one hand, we really are trying hard to communicate and get out ahead of this thing and say, listen, if you've had a COVID-impacted hardship, come to us, demonstrate it, and we'll work with you on finding a payment plan, deferred payments. We obviously have obligations running to our tenants and to our investors, and we need to balance those to serve all of those constituencies well. So we really try to communicate well to them. One of our third-party property managers has an excellent system where tenants can go online, demonstrate or prove that they have a hardship. And then once they do that, the tenant can call basically a 1-800 number at the office for the property manager. And essentially, you'll have a Zoom call with someone who will walk you through all of the state unemployment and all the federal unemployment and in all of the uh, stimulus checks that they can get access to, to help that tenant ride through this financial storm that we're in. So I can't say that was directly our work, but working with a property manager who does that kind of thing is phenomenally forward thinking and I think has reduced the financial turbulence that we would be getting otherwise. That's a really good point because I think most operators, most owners, they don't do that. They focus on collecting and not many are exposing this information to tenants because the information that you and I have, which is obvious to us how things 
are being done, what kind of aids are out there. It's not necessarily the information that is available to tenants. They don't know, right, Ellie? And so we have one property manager, who, the property manager showed us the document that they're sending to all of the tenants. And first of all, it's a paper document. It's not electronic, so you can't click through to hyperlinks. But second of all, it's a list of like just 24 websites. And even for me, that's overwhelming. Which website do I click on? Which one is important? But if you have someone who, whose full-time job, eight hours a day, is to be a guide through this paperwork and get that person the funds they need, that's incredibly valuable. And the other thing that most of us investors don't appreciate is there is a phenomenal swath of America who don't have bank accounts, right? They live paycheck to paycheck. And some of those are our tenants. Many of them are our tenants. And at least for the stimulus check, if you have a financial relationship with the IRS, you get your funds in about April. If you don't have a financial relationship with the IRS, you get your check maybe in August. So theoretically, everyone gets a $1,200 check. But whether you get it in April or August makes all the difference in the world for your financial viability as a tenant. But also for us, if all of our tenants like were like, oh, I'll just pay you in August when I get my check, we're in trouble. So accelerating that through navigating those websites and that bureaucratic paperwork is the difference between success and failure. So that was a phenomenally smart move by that property manager, really impressed us. Very interesting. And I think very unique and probably something that is not hard to apply if you have the right person who can dig into it and dedicate their time to do it. That's a phenomenal piece of information and piece of advice. Now, I want to shift a little bit our conversation to talk about strategy and how can part-time investors become full-time investors. And this is something that I know a lot of people who either haven't started investing passively, they still have their W-2 job, or those who have a job and are investing on the side but really want to transition and invest full-time what do you think would be the best next step to do at this point? You know, a lot more people have more time, they're sitting at home, and it's time to kind of reevaluate their strategies. And I hear a lot of people asking, should we become full-time investors now? Yeah, it is obviously a very detail-specific question to answer that. But what I will say is, a rising tide lifts all boats. And on the flip side, the phrase is, when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked, right? And so the application for that here is, when there's a recession, you figure out who's really bought good assets and who is just kind of lucky, right? And so that means that this is kind of a good time to figure out whether you've really learned your stuff and whether your portfolio is really strong enough such that you could take that leap and move away from the W-2 and rely upon your portfolio. So this is a good testing ground for people to say, you know, do I really have the right thing that I can rely on this and grow this thing for decades? So I think that that is a really great silver lining about this recession is that we're going to find out how strong your portfolio is, how much it can take the stress. But we're also finding that it would be really nice to be a little bit diversified and to have some income stream coming from your properties and some maybe coming from the W-2 for a little bit longer until it grows a bit more so that even if it pulls back, you can still pay your bills, still fill up the car with gas, et cetera. So maybe that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but my thought is you know a lot more now than you knew six months ago about whether you were ready to jump off and do this full-time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Andrew, you've been doing it for a while. This is your full-time job to invest in buying multifamily properties and operating them. Can you walk me through a typical day in your life as a real estate investor? A lot of phone calls, a lot of checking up on the portfolio. So we are a full owner operator, right? So we are fully enmeshed in the operations of the properties. And so we stay looking at it 10 hours a day so that our investors don't have to is one way I think about it. So today I spent 90 minutes on the phone call with our asset manager reviewing each one of our properties and looking at my notes from last week on each one of the properties. Hey, here's the sensitive things we were talking about last week. Did these things get resolved? So we're looking through all 13 properties and then we're looking at our sort of strategic quarter two goals for streamlining certain operations or getting better websites or getting better lead channels. That's one part of my day. And then another part of my day was just talking to my partner about the business and just kind of brainstorming, not on those tactical issues, but more on those strategic issues. How do we move forward? What do we want to look like in a year's time? What's our capability for finding new deals? How should we underwrite deals differently in light of COVID? You know, those sorts of more strategic questions. We're also looking at a deal that's supposed to sell in eight days, and we are making sure that we're ready for that sale and also are ready even more so than in the past, we're thinking, what if this deal falls through? What if the lender isn't willing to press that wire button at that last minute? You know, like, are we ready to continue owning it? So even though it's tempting to kind of coast into that closing date, we're still trying to accelerate the gas pedal on collections and other aspects of that property. So one of those is talking to lenders about alternative financing structures. So I was calling banks a lot today. I was also talking to some accountants about some tax issues. So things that maybe aren't as poster worthy, but they're really important detail oriented things to make sure that everything is simple and works well for our investors. And so it looks like you're doing a lot of things altogether. And I would love to talk about time management tactics. But when it comes to working as a full-time investor, what do you think are the main characteristics of those who have done it successfully? Yeah, I think as a full-time investor, you are a lot like the conductor of the orchestra. So you don't have to be really good at playing the trombone, but you better get the trombone to work with the drums, whatever the analogy is, right? So on any given day, I'm talking to asset managers, acquisitions team, accountants, lawyers, podcasts, all of these different things. And they're all important components of the business. I'm also talking to investors. I mean, we make it a policy or a goal to respond to investor questions in an hour's time and at the very worst in 24 hours time. So I'm always available on the phone to our investors. And so there's all these different hats you're wearing. And so knowing enough to be very competent in all of those, I can get tempted personally to get too deep into the specifics on any one of those and not let our team do that. I think that's a key for being a full-time real estate investor is having really good partnerships or really good vendors like your mortgage broker or your insurance broker and empowering them and trusting them to execute for you. And what would be your advice for someone who hasn't been investing in real estate at all and they're interested in doing it now so they will be able to gradually graduate and basically do what you do full-time? When I started out, I tried to do everything myself. I bought a duplex by myself or I own a single family home by myself. And of course, your cash runs out, but equally importantly, your time runs out very quickly. And so you could have pivot to this model where you partner with really good people. And by partnering either through like the formal method of syndications or just kind of doing a deal with two other persons, you have different skill sets that you bring to it. 
and you can grow more quickly and you can sort of rely on each other. So if I'm going on vacation, you can handle the email traffic. And so I think for me, really, that was key to being able to scale. I can think of a few key relationships that gave me the confidence even to pursue this because certain people really knew what they were doing and I could trust them to work with me. So the advice there is don't try to be an island. Don't try to do it by yourself. Find people that are competent and that you trust and work with them to do more together. And how can you find those people? It's not easy, unfortunately, because you know, you're going to go buy a million dollar asset together. And that's a very real thing. And it's not like buying a million dollars of GE stock where you can just sell it if it doesn't work out tomorrow. It's somewhat illiquid, either because of your financing has prepayment penalties or just because maybe it's a terrible time to sell in the middle of COVID, right? And so you're stuck holding on its asset for a while. So the point is, you're getting into a very serious relationship with a lot of dollars on the line with people that you may not know as well as you think you do. So one answer to your question is go to a meetup and meet people. And that is good. But if I meet you at a meetup tonight and we have coffee and you seem great, anyone can have a really good first impression for a little bit of time. And, and time is the true revealer of character. So for me, people that I can trust, I know that that's true if we've spent a lot of time together. So my encouragement would be think about people that you know and have built trust with over time. And if they have that common interest, those are the people you want to work with on that first deal. I would just hate to do a deal with someone that you thought you knew well, and then it kind of goes sideways. We've all heard those stories before and they're tough stories. Yeah. And it's always challenging because at the beginning, everyone seems to be perfect and they're fun and they're easygoing. And as you work with them, you find different shades of their personality or ethics. And it's really not easy to do. And I always tell people, you know, don't run to and form an LLC right away. Do one deal, see how it works, do a second deal. And then if it looks like a good partnership, then you can move forward. The relationship can be difficult for one of at least two ways. One, either because their values or the ethics are different, or others because their sense of detail or their sense of what they want or their carefulness and underwriting is just different than what you expect. And so you just sort of see the world a different way. But either of those can make things go sideways, and then it's hard to unwind that relationship. You're still stuck together with that asset until you find a way out. It's probably one of the top three most important things when you're doing real estate is to partner well. It can't be overstated. Well, let's talk a little bit about the process part of investing in real estate. And I want to talk a little bit about time management. So obviously, I heard you say, you know, I'm talking with lawyers, with the employees or people on my team, with asset managers, property managers. It looks like you're doing a lot in one day, kind of shuffling, you're wearing multiple hats. What do you think is the number one challenge in time management for someone who wants to become a full-time investor and do what you do on a daily basis? The number one thing to do, and I still struggle to do this really well, is to get enough quiet time before the craziness of the day starts to think about what you want to accomplish in that day and not get whipsawed by all the emails and phone calls that are coming in. And every day I either do pretty well or not so well on that. The days where I do do well, it's because I got a little bit of time in the morning to think, what do I want to accomplish today? What do I want to finish today? You know, what box do I want to check off? And then literally in my calendar, block off that time so that there's space for me to get that done. Because the email traffic, it just comes in and it's like a fast treadmill. And at the end of the day, you've kept up with the emails, but you're like, did I really go anywhere? All I did was sort of manage email traffic. 
And then maybe you didn't accomplish that goal. So that for me is the main reason why I do or don't do what I want to accomplish in a day. Yeah, I can definitely relate. I can tell you that I read The One Thing by Gary Keller, which is a great book. And his advice is, he basically said, I try to grow Keller Williams and it didn't work for a long time. And he realized that he was kind of doing a lot of things. And he said, I'm blocking. I've learned to block the first four hours or five hours in the day. And I say, what is the one thing that by doing it, everything else is going to be unnecessary or easier, all the other things. And I focus on that. And then he saw kind of a tremendous growth. And I'm trying to do it also. Obviously, when he did it many years ago, you didn't have 50 emails coming in in two hours. And so it was a little bit easier. I also know that Gmail has this button that you can click on and it pauses. It's really hard for me to do it because what if something happens with one of the properties that I want to know, I need to know it right away. Do you have any tool that you use to help you or any method to help you stay on top of everything and focus on what's important to help you better manage your time? So my technology hack for 20, probably 2019, 2020, that's been super helpful for me is Calendly. It's just sort of a small thing. It's an integration you can put into your Gmail, right? And I can just send to you my calendar link and then you can sort of have full visibility into my calendar to make a 15-minute appointment, a 30-minute appointment. And then it automates some emails to you to give you my Zoom link. And so, you know, I get emails couple times a day, maybe five, six times a day. Hey, do you want to meet together? What time works well for you? Instead of all that back and forth scheduling, I just send them my Calendly link and it automates that. That's a great micro productivity hack. The other thing that I'm trying to figure out, I really haven't done yet, is to employ an assistant or a virtual assistant well. That only works if you have repetitive tasks that you can systematize. And because if every task is different, then you can't train one person to do it over and over again. So I'm trying to figure that out for me. I know a lot of people that have done that really well and it sort of liberates them. It's sort of like what Gary Keller was talking about there. I'm still looking and I haven't gotten there yet. I think it'll be a game changer if I do. And I know that you do that a little bit, Ellie, and I, I'm sure that's been helpful for you. Yes, I've been using Upwork uh, and I've hired before and I'm still hiring people to help take all the assignments that I used to do because I used to do almost everything and then took a big chunk of it and outsourced and then another big chunk and outsourced. One thing I don't do and I heard that someone else was doing was having his assistant basically going through his emails and answer some of them and leave unread for him to read later for important ones. It needs to be the right person to do it. And it's kind of challenging. I don't know if I feel comfortable with it and I can, you know, I tackle emails pretty quickly, but I think mainly the, the main thing, even if you go through a lot of emails in one hour to be able to delegate some of the assignments so you can focus on what is driving the bottom line, you know, in, in your business, what's going to improve your profitability. This is what you're going to focus on. Maybe posting something on social media to bring an investor might, but probably someone else can do it. So I think you have some things that nobody can replace you in your business. Other things can be replaced. I agree with that. But I am not a model of that. It's something for me to improve on Ellie. But you know, the catchphrase that I've heard is to delegate and elevate, really set your eyes on bigger and better things. And not only that, but the things you enjoy more. We kind of get into this to sort of get out of the rat race and to sort of have more enjoyable work time. And so if there's things that you just don't enjoy, just to you know pass them off to someone else. I'm trying to do a better job at that. But as you say, it's really important to find someone that you trust because sometimes you're giving out your credit card information or your social security number or something akin to that. Again, it comes down to trust. 
Absolutely. Definitely a work in progress for me as well. All right. Well, we've arrived to our last part, which is the lightning round questions. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Perfect. Question number one. Andrew, what's your favorite hobby? Smoking barbecue. I do a lot of grilling now. So that's my new one. Oh, it's a new hobby. Yeah, I kind of understand why you picked that hobby out right now. Haven't done it in a while. That's right. We're homebound. You might as well make good food. (laughs) That's right. Well, second question. What's the number one thing that most people don't know about you? I used to be an elite whitewater kayaker, traveled the world paddling some of the better rivers in the globe. Been to five continents paddling. So that was a great hobby, but no longer. Which one was the longer river that you've done that? There's a river that's been dammed, but it's it's basically the headwaters of the Nile River in Northern Africa and Uganda. Absolutely awesome water. It was really fun. Very impressive. Question number three, what do you wish that you had known when you started investing in real estate? Time is your friend. So all this stuff snowballs, right? Compound interest. I started 10 years ago, but I wish I started 20 years ago because it's just amazing how it starts to just really grow in your favor if you have the time working for you. All right. Question number four. What's the number one advice you have for real estate investors who want to scale their business? Yeah, we talked about this before, but it's partnered with smart people that you trust. That's it. You know, you just can't do it on your own, either time-wise, it's also lonely, and you don't have someone to check your work. And financially, you're going to run out of money trying to do it on your own. So partner with a good person. Absolutely. All right, Andrew, our last question is where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you and talk real estate investing? Yeah, absolutely. Our website is nighthawkequity.com and my email address is drew at Nighthawk Equity. There's no K on the front. It's not like the night from medieval times. It's like uh, evening night. So nighthawkequity.com. All right, perfect, Drew. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You are welcome, Ali. Thank you for having me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.